Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I'm the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney. And my producers today are Anthony Dockrell and Julia Carr-Katzel. So while we've all been digesting the federal election and its aftermath, and wondering why, is, wondering why News Limited is opening up a new news site in Canberra and how much Sky News David Spears uh, is going to be paid to defect to the ABC. The world, that's right, the world has been busy spinning. There's been elections in South Africa, in Indonesia, in Israel, India and the European Union. Trump's been playing golf in Japan. Theresa May will soon be out of a job. And Julia Assange, yes, Julia Assange, has been hit with espionage charges in the United States. So there's been a lot going on, but how has it been reported? Tonight, we asked some hard questions about how we get our international news and how the world views us. And yes, what we might think about May's demise and Julian uh, Assange. Yes, it's big stuff. And to tackle... Those big issues we've recruited a suitably big in name and in reputation panel. Returning to the fourth estate, we have Jamie Smith, who is the Australian Pacific correspondent for the Financial Two Times. Hello, Jamie. Hello. Good afternoon. Nice to see you again. Uh, Jonathan Perlman, who is the editor of Australian Foreign Affairs and the world editor of the Saturday Paper. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Peter. And also, I might add, a former uh, London Daily Telegraph stringer, among many other jobs you've had. Great That's to right. see. Thanks. Uh, and Chris Antidiotis. Did I say that right? No. No, I never <laughs> say it right, do I? Uh, who is a journalist. She's reported from very some very far-flung places, including the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and an academic who is a postdoc research fellow at the Center for Media Transition. So it's a little bit in-house tonight, but she specializes in what's called Localism, and more about that in a minute. Hello, Chrysanthi. Hi, Peter. And Thanks now you need me. to pl- please say your name for us. Uh, Chrysanthi Giotis. Giotis. Yeah. Giotis. Or Yotis, if you want to say Yotis. Yotis. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Yotis, like the Yotis parked over there. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. Oh, no, I'll never get it wrong again, though. <laughs> okay. So let me open with that never-ending correct that is Brexit. Um, it's just claimed its second prime minister, with Theresa May resigning after a plan for Brexit was rejected for what seems like, I don't know, the 1200th time. I know. For Just quickly, Jamie, for all of us who've lost the strength to follow Brexit, can you briefly explain why she's gone now? I know, just briefly, in a sentence. I think she's gone because she failed to deliver Brexit and also because it became clear that she's a really she's become a big liability for the party so this came her departure is coming against the backdrop of the european elections where the conservative party have been annihilated by nigel farage's brexit party so i think that combination of really disappointing the conservative base in terms of not delivering brexit and also the fact that electorally they've suffered a massive defeat meant her position was untenable. Okay. I mean, she was always going to go. It just happened to be that day, really, didn't it? Let's talk about how the media covered her departure and how the media has covered her. As it's, I, I mean, anyone looking at this from afar, uh, you know, you look at it and go, oh, my God, what, what, that's remarkable. What a, what a terrible period. I mean, uh, watching someone being essentially put to the rack, really, on a daily basis. Anyway, 
Um, has she, let's say, like Julia Gillard before, been given an extra special treatment by the news media because of her gender? What do you think about that, Jonathan? Uh, I don't know how much gender played a part. Mm. Um, I think um, I think it's comparable to to um, you know in trying to discern the media's role. It's a little bit comparable to the Trump phenomenon. Brexit and Trump are often compared. Mm. Um, and you know these sort of great disruptions, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so you know, in terms of in ter- the media has been rabid against May. Well, um, the media in the UK. In the media yeah. in the UK, yeah. um, and it was rabid in the lead up to Brexit. Um, it certainly played a role. With the gender part. I mean, just to you, Krasanthi, uh, you know, the Sun referred to her as kitten heels in one headline. Famously read, kitten heels must put foot down on immigration now. I mean, those immigration now, sorry. Those sorts of things. Um, is, is, did she get the kind of Gillard treatment, which Gillard famously said it wasn't, you know, it was something, it wasn't all of it. But. Yeah, I actually am going to come down on the same side as Gillard on this. Gender is always a part of it. Doesn't matter. I mean, we live in a patriarchy. It doesn't matter what you do as a woman. Gender is always a part of it. That's just the way that it is. Um, I expect nothing less from the sun, basically. Mm. Um, and well, it's kind I, of their job, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's kind of their job in the way they sort of point out what a patriarchal society we still live in. Um, I actually, from my point of view, the bigger issue is the fact that we're still reporting the man, not the issue. Yes. You know, well, well, um, Jonathan reporting just, what she wore and not the issue. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. and it and gender just heightens that. Mm, but mm. it is a problem in politics in general. Like we're not actually reporting the big thing, which is that Brexit has stalled every type mm. of politics in the UK for the last three years. Mm. There was a fantastic um, letter to the editor, which was in the Independent today, which was from. The Labour students, young Greens, Scottish young Greens, young Liberals, con- uh, young Conservatives and played youth. And they're all coming together to say that we're sick of this. Um, Can we get on with you know, something else? Yeah. With our lives? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I think, Peter, that, I mean, the, the media have played an extraordinarily divisive role in the UK mm. in the Brexit debate, focusing on personalities focusing on, uh, it's become a very jingoistic sort of debate there, you know, us against the Europeans, Mm. uh, particularly the tabloids. Mm. And what that has really meant is you've got very little focus on the complexities of what Brexit actually means. Mm. This was a factor in the referendum as well. There really wasn't enough focus on actually what would leaving the EU actually cost Mm. Britain. Um, and uh, there wasn't a lot of focus on, you know, the benefits of the of Britain being in the EU. But this has a very long history in the UK. You know, over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been extremely biased reporting of Europe. Uh, the Murdoch phenomenon there. Not uh, just Murdoch, though, is it? I mean, the Daily Mail has hardly been a, a grand supporter of the EU project. You're dead right. And the Daily Telegraph as well have been yeah. very critical. However, it's very interesting. The Daily Mail have shifted sides. Um more recently under a new editor, maybe because they've seen the difficulties that this has really brought the country to. But I think, you know, this is a a classic example of how journalism is failing in the modern era to get to grips with complexities. It's Mm. probably part of society moving on at a very 
fast, right, with social media. There's not a lot of time for people to read context. Maybe they're too busy in their jobs. But, you know, there's a deep feeling, I think, in journalism. Well, that's true. I mean, so I guess with all these sorts of issues, it's whether the news media is reflecting, if you like. I mean, look, let's face it. Brexit is is a very complex issue, right? So um, how do you create demand? I mean, what's the push-pull factors here? How do you create demand to... Uh, yeah, uh, to read something about the complexity rather than the fact that Mrs. May wears leopard skin, you know, shoes. I mean, I'm not excusing the media. I'm just saying, how do we go about making things like Brexit, Brexit better understood? I'm Chris Anthony and then Jonathan. Well, I think the first thing that we have to do is not blame the audience. I mean, that jingoistic reporting actually, and the jingoistic issues actually point to the fact that the underlying problems which have led to that reporting is a globalised economy and people movements that are the biggest in history, right? Every two seconds a person is displaced. Think about that. Another one. Another one. Another one. That's going to make a really (laughs) difficult programme, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Turn the programme off now. Stop being being displaced. No, but the point (laughs) is that actually those are really difficult things that to report and they've come in this time when that is all that social media reporting which Jamie was just So you were blaming about. the journalists not the audience. Um yeah. Okay. I think that we can we can create the demand. Okay, we can create the demand. This is called the anti-fourth estate show today. <laughs> Jonathan, what do you think? It's what do you think of the coverage we're getting in this country of Brexit for instance? Um That's a good question. The coverage of I mean, is, there any, is, it, is it kind of excusable that we would play, as it were, the, the sort of personal tragedy, which is quite Shakespearean, it has to be said, of Mrs. May, uh, as opposed to trying to even think about whether it means anything for British or European citizens? Yeah, I mean, I think now Australia sort of shares the rest of the world's Brexit fatigue, and I think, um, um, you know, there's probably less reporting of the intricacies than there should be, but that's that's kind of understandable. Um I think the uh, I don't see a major problem with the with the reporting of it here. Certainly not compared with with the reporting that's gone on in Britain. I mean, I don't think we can now get to the bottom of you know is the media in Britain following um, or setting the agenda. Um, but I do think that you know some of the issues that Santhi was talking about, you know, people flows, um, and and just general kinds of um, parochialism in Britain, certainly when you're talking about sort of Daily Mail type approach to this issue, um, that, you know, you can see um, politicians and the media seizing on um, kind of emotive responses to that. And when you start to see that happen, I think you start to to, um, detect an an agenda um, and um, detect... You know, the media not necessarily merely kind of reflecting views, but mm. trying to shape them and manipulate them. So, Jamie, I'm going to exclude the Financial Times because I'm not going to ask you to re- re- talk about your own fine organ. Uh, but how do you think the media, was, the issue was reported? And and also this point that uh, came out in a bit of a Reuters Institute study, which was in essence that by turning it all into a kind of he said she said bun fight, it becomes more remote from the average reader that it actually becomes a kind of more of an abstract concept oh there's a fight happening on in Westminster or Brussels wherever and so it's less 
even less and less attached to me, my life. And and then, you know, so people kind of get disen- disenchanted, dis- disinterested, and before you know it, they're voting Nigel Farage as sort of, you know, into the European Parliament. I don't know. Is this sort of, the, is this where journalism needs to kind of get real? You know, is it getting too easily distracted by the fluff? Well, just on the Australian coverage, I'd say yeah. one issue there is syndication. You okay. Know? Yeah, There's that's a lot good of syndicated copy coming from... Uh, right-wing newspapers in the UK being uh, published for an Australian audience. Mm -hmm. And I think that's not ideal. So you definitely want to have your own correspondence there on the ground uh, reporting from an Australian point of view. On the he says, she says argument, yeah, that's a big problem, I think, you know. You get this in the issue of climate change coverage as well, where you get this sort of false bias that journalists think they have to report two sides of the same story from a he says, she says. Uh, I would think that at one point in that Reuters, a Reuters Institute report that was written after the referendum was they looked at who did people actually cite in the articles. Politicians were cited a lot mm. from both sides. And of course, they're going to have the he says, she says argument. Sure. Who wasn't pu- uh, published a lot of was academics, experts in different fields. Actually, there was a, a minority and not a lot of people were actually quoted in that. And I think that's where you've really, as a journalist, got a responsibility to try and get outside the political uh, biases, shall we say, you know, the two sides. Try and, you know, you're obviously coming from your own perspective as well, and everyone brings their own bias to it, but try and pick up, uh, uh, you know, experts' analysis from different areas and, and bring it together yourself. To well, try and uh, Chrysanthi, on that, I mean, yes, that referendum really was the anti-expert referendum as well. Was it famously Michael Gove said, you know, we would trust an expert anymore. Do you think well, that's a watershed? I mean, are we, are we reached that point in this country, for instance, where we don't really listen to experts or academics, dare I say it? Oh, gosh. Um, that was a question where I was just supposed to answer yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's correct. Well, no, you can answer, <laughs> you can answer no. I don't mind. Um I think that, in general, there's never been a tendency in Australia to listen to academics. That's pretty well established. Mm. Um, and I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I think that we we should be listening just as much to what people are saying in the street as as academics, and probably if we did, we wouldn't have got... You know, the we wouldn't have re- relied so much on the polls, and so mm. many journos wouldn't have got the latest election results. Well, this right? is your field of study. I mean, we should introduce this now. Localism. Tell us about that. Uh, so basically, what my thesis is is that we live in a disintermediated world, and there are a lot of people who are getting their news not from the ABC, not not even from SBS. Not, not from even from 2SER. No, not, not even, even from 2SER, no, believe it or not, um, which is a <laughs> tragedy. Incredible. <laughs> um, we are getting our, our news direct from overseas, and at the same time we are actually contributing to a global public sphere. So what we are saying here in Australia is actually reverberating around the world, sometimes uh, more obviously than others. So we actually need to start thinking about the world as a global public sphere, and when we're reporting on things that are happening in the world, that has to be part of it. We need to be connecting with local communities here who are international. Local communities are international and they have their own uh, expertise and they have their own experiences, which most middle-class journalists don't have. Mm. And So your idea is that you would go out into, say, Jamie here, mm-hmm. example, Exhibit A, would go out and if we were reporting on... 
say, the re-election around Ramodi would go off and talk to the Indian community. Absolutely. And what would and, and why would he do that? Well, mainly to actually see what they're reading, to hear what discourses okay. they're coming to. So my Indian friends now don't read the BBC or or the AB, or turn to the ABC because they can go direct to the source. Mm-hmm. Um, they're getting their news from recommendations on Facebook. And so when that happens, what they're seeing is that they're getting stories about why the election has has happened, not mm. just the fact, oh, there's a surge to the right. Mm. Okay. So and it, okay. that sort of That's complexity is not coming through. Jamie, would you have time to go and talk to the local Indians like that? Would you believe I did? Oh, my God. No, no, no. <laughs> For the Modi election. Like <laughs> however, however, what it was was a group of uh, Modi supporters who right. were having a demonstration outside the Sydney Opera House oh, to yeah. put on Facebook, the social media, to send across the electronic uh, medium to try and boost his support at home. It's quite interesting. Mm. But, yeah, that, that I mean, I wasn't – I was just tapping that into our global coverage of the Indian election. It was how the diaspora is important in that. Mm. But I do see it's important to speak to communities on the ground, and the recent election in Australia shows not many picked up the big swing in Queensland. Um, but it is c- difficult to do that. It's difficult to – you know, you can go to pubs, you can go to uh, churches, but how many people can you speak to? to actually get the real feel for what's going on. You know, you can be limited as a journalist with time and resources. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, because you end up, it's kind of like a sampling exercise. Mm. But but you're talking about something a little bit different, which is not so much that you would quote these people, rather as you would understand deeper, get a deeper understanding of what was important yeah, by exactly. talking to these people yeah, rather exactly. than quoting them. They're not, they're not sources. No, they're not. You ask them to comment on the media coverage. Yeah, okay. So you actually get them to to be your critics, basically. And so that way you'd... It's a, it's a, it, in the old days, that would naturally happen, right? You would naturally spend time in long conversations with people, mm. not for quoting, right? Deep background. Yeah, maybe. Just doesn't exist. I mean, I'm old. I don't remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Yes, I've okay. I've heard. I've heard. Oh, you heard this, ta- this tale. Oh, right, I've heard okay. this tale, if, yeah. if I could add one thing about <laughs> yeah. journalism and reporting... And the lack of expertise. I think one thing, the climate and energy debate in Australia tends to be written by political correspondents, Mm. Mm. not energy correspondents. And that's a big change in the media that you've seen in the last 20 years Mm. because we don't have the personnel and resources. And a lot of it turns to the he says, she says. Oh, that's right. And and, uh, Jonathan, you've written a bit about this and you and I have talked about this. Just sticking on Asia for a second, Mm. you know, you run a, a, a fabulous new magazine journal. I mean, it's a kind of magazine journal. Is I'll it call it a magazine. Yeah, it's, it's a jagazine. Whatever it is, it's fabulous. And um, and you sort of look at those issues around, under the radar. How do you think? I mean, it's like 25 years since Keating told us we were all Asians and no one believed him then, and I think they believe him less now. How do you think we've gone with this Asian thing, Australians? And how do you think Asia's reported here broadly? I'm a big question, I know. Um, I think there are big problems with the way that Asia is reported here. Um uh, the coverage is fairly shallow and probably shallower than it used to be. Um, you know, and this is another symptom, I suppose, of just foreign bureaus closing down. Um, but Australia, over the years, has produced some, you know, some great experts out yeah. of its media outlets um, from, uh, you know, from people who've who've travelled across Southeast Asia. Um, you know, picked up a lot and then then really given a lot back to the debate here. Yeah. 
Um, They're probably having those deep conversations that Chrysanthemum is talking about right. in tea houses that's and right. pubs. <laughs> so mm. I think we're, you know, mm. we're just not going to see that anymore, which I think is really unfortunate. Mm. Um, you know, we've just seen the Indonesian election. It's quite incredible. Um, it's an incredible country. It's incredible what's what's happened there, the changes mm. that, that go on there, mm. and yet. Um, Coverage here is is very limited. It's either limited to you know diplomatic disputes, you know drug yeah. smugglers, you know yeah refugees, yeah. refugees. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of in depth coverage of Indonesian politics, and yet Indonesia is a crucial country to Australia and becoming more and more important um, as the region changes, as as China grows. Um, Indonesia you know, could, could potentially um, be some sort of partner for mm. Australia as mm. in, as China grows. Um, yeah, we should, no we, literally, we should go out there and do more reporting. I do believe that the Judith Nielsen Institute is going to fund or part fund a journalist up there for one of the major news organisations. So it's good, good to see them yeah. recognising that. Um, let's switch a little bit here and talk about how uh, one of my favourite subjects is, is how Australia's reported to the rest of the world. You both, in fact, you three, have all got some thoughts of this about this. But let's start with you, Jamie. Um, now, you're a slightly different beast because you report you know, serious things like oil and gas and politics and what have you. But how do you feel that Australia's sort of when, – when you're thinking about picking a story, because there's an endless number of stories, right? You, you know, what guides you? And do you, do you ever find yourself double-taking it, taking your thought process and going, yeah, 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 I really wish I could do that thing about crocodiles and snakes? Well, my editor, <laughs> when, I, when I got this job, he yep. said, do not report on sharks. Really? No shark stories. No sharks. No animal attack stories. You're there to be a serious journalist. Well, and that's, what that's a, part of the FT what, mantra. What a, what a person. Uh, now, however, was shark either? stories go down yeah. extremely well with the public. <laughs> <laughs> and I did write a shark story. More about the technology of sharks. Really? Yeah. Was that that uh, thing about spotting them using... Um, AI and drones, drones and shark and resistance suits. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I just wanted to get out there with those, you did, uh, didn't you? those yeah. amazing Couldn't animals. Couldn't resist it. Yes. Uh, however, I mean, for us, the way we the way we cover Australia is very much, we are a global newspaper. We're looking at how Australia fits into its region yeah, right. and the world. Okay. So I'm trying to tap into global themes. So, for example, you know, some of the best themes here have been climate change, Great Barrier Reef, um, how 50% of the corals died. That That's a fascinating story. And mm. it's you know obviously got uh, consequences for reef systems around the world. Uh, the energy transition is really interesting. Australia is you know, really quite an amazing country in terms of renewables. And it's doing some pretty dynamic stuff, even though most of what you see in the domestic press is stuff about coal. Mm. Uh, but there's great stories there. And the rise of China has been another big theme for us. Um, and we like to tell that story through Australian eyes, you know, the amount of investment that's come in here, the foreign influence debate. There's a multiplicity of great global themes that we can tap into. Um, and occasionally I do look for an animal story, but it has to fit. Okay. The, has so to fit I'm going to go to Chrysanthemum in a second, but first you, Jonathan, because A, you've got this new wonderful magazine. Well, not so new now. It's a year old, right? Uh, yeah, a little, yeah. Bit, a little bit more. Yeah. A little bit more than a year. Yeah. But when you were the de- London yeah. Daily Telegraph, yeah. Person, so well, I didn't that's get a very edit. serious newspaper too, of course. It, it's a bit like the FT, but the, you you would have done your fair share of dingoes and snakes, that's and a huge spiders, under, understatement. And um, I didn't get that. You didn't get. I, that. I, I didn't get the um, opposite mantra from my editors because they weren't that explicit. But um, they loved anything to do with sharks, 
koalas, racist Brits, racist Australians. Um, uh, All that the stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. The they, they loved it. Um, and I have to say, I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, that was just the way the Telegraph does see Australia. It's interested in Australia as a colour story and it's not interested in it as a, uh, as a, you know, in any great political depth in terms of elections. It's Is that because a lot of its readers personality. own it so they don't need to worry about what's going on? <laughs> Quite possibly. Um, so um, they read the FT to work out what's happening to that yeah. and, and their children can read their stories about dingoes eating their babies. I think, uh, look, I think the FT is closer to a paper of record um, and the Telegraph doesn't see itself Oof. like that. Um, you're, you're no longer the Daily Telegraph stringer. I'm not. Yeah. So I can, I can talk if they ever hear this, you will never be the DT yeah. stringer again. Uh, that's true. Um, uh, you know, I think the Telegraph's world coverage is fantastic. I think they take, um, they can, they can really bring readers into stories, and um, and and you know, it's just I'm talking particularly about the way they see Australia, but um, mm, mm. but the Telegraph does take world coverage. No, I know. Seriously, no, I'm being a bit um, facetious. but but. Uh, I will say that um, one one thing that I've found interesting is how little the the global media have paid attention to um, to Australia as being on the front line of the impacts of China's rise. Mm. Um, it, and and it was interesting to see the New York Times just ran a very very in depth, really excellent piece on that. Um, you know, it, it's a piece that could have been written any time over the mm. last. Sort of ten years, and now they have a bureau here, so they're investigating this, investigating this in more depth. Um, but Australia is—I um, know you know—we have constant discussion here and debate here about China, and it might seem that it's sort of overkill. Um, but the debate here is is occurring um, at a kind of level and depth that I think is is greater than a lot of other countries because of Australia's peculiar situation. Australia is more heavily dependent on China for trade than any other advanced economy. That you know, this just and it, yeah, and it we're, keeps caught, growing. we're caught in the middle, aren't we? We're, we're caught in the middle, and so we're a fascinating case study for that. And I've, I've, you know, I think the foreign media should be paying a lot more attention to Australia for that because there's a lot of great stories coming out here. There's a lot of kind of you know fascinating debate, the foreign influence debate, well, well. questions about you know Chinese spies in Australian universities. I mean, these issues are now playing out. Um, abroad, but Australia is just an excellent country to explore that. Yeah, it's a uh, crucial issue. As, as James, to James' point, that there's all these global themes that can that play out here. Kazanthi, there's two things I'd like to ask. I'd like to ask you that question, but also flip it again and talk about the stories that are underreported. For instance, you know, you went to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where when, what's the body count now? Six million or more. People have died. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a disputed figure, but yes, yeah. six million. Okay, is the is the millions count. of people have millions died, of people, and absolutely. probably one of the least reported stories on the planet. Yeah, I mean, if I can just quickly comment on that last discussion, of that what I loved about that was actually just hearing that it just brought to the fore why foreign correspondence is still so necessary, because it. it, it shines a light on our own society by seeing how we are reported by others. And that's one of the beauties of the age that we live in now. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you know, reading FT stories about Australia, tapping into those global stories, that's exactly what we should be doing. That's exactly what foreign correspondents should be doing. Unfortunately, those links aren't often made. So, 
For example, I still own an iPhone, even though I know that it's quite possible that there are minerals in my iPhone that are contributing to that huge body You're not count. alone in owning an iPhone, I no. just might add that. No, yeah. but still, like, it, I find it completely hypocritical that I go and report on the refugee situation in the or displaced person situation in the Congo and still own an iPhone. Um, mm. But, you know, the answers aren't there. And I think the fact that those answers are so difficult is why you have statistics like... The fact that, you know, so on the same day, this is a statistic I love from philosopher Lane Deberton in his book on the news. So on the same day that uh, the BBC recorded 2.52 million readers for Bowie Comeback Makes Top 10 Singles Chart, (laughs) there was a story, East DR Congo Faces Catastrophic Humanitarian Crisis, and you get 4,450 readers. Wow. And you... But it, again, I don't blame the audience for that. Like, we don't know what to do, mm. you know. And so, and because we're not getting those complex stories, because we're not making these links, you know, the, the audience knows what they're going to read. They're going to read death and destruction. It kind of goes a little bit to the what is journalism about as well, right? I mean, so one of the roles of journalists, I mean, is to entertain. I suppose two and a half million people were interested in Bowie. I'm a very mm-hmm. popular singer and all that and they don't necessarily want to read about millions dying in the drc i know but i think that they again let's not blame the audience but i think that they would if we actually knew what was going on in the drc more generally i don't know i'm I'm, yeah i don't disagree with you yeah i was going to mention i think this one interesting dynamic i mean i think you know racism plays a big part in our um because they're black yeah and and um and seen as you know poor and um and and irrelevant, um uh, so I think that that plays a part. It's also a hard country to report on. Um, uh, I went there years ago with with the great photographer Kate Garrity when we were at Sydney Morning Herald. We had to pay our own way, and the Sydney Morning Herald didn't want us to go because it was worried about. Was the consequences? Quite possibly. Oh, no. <laughs> um, you ran our stories. Oh, that's right. Thanks. Yeah, good, good pieces. There. <laughs> I, I think one of the dangers is uh, we have just got uh, an, an app or a, a program that all the journalists have got called Lantern, which shows the metrics of how many clicks on your stories. And the editors read that assiduously in the FT. And of course, you know, if your story gets under 5,000 clicks, yeah. you know, do it again. We don't want to do it again. So I'll give you a classic example, the Manus Island, uh, Nauru stories. You know, that is a really important journalistic story, which says a lot about Australia. It's not very popular with our readers. So we probably haven't written as much about it, certainly in the last year or two, than I would be particularly happy with. So it's these types of issues. Right. I mean, mean, this does go to that rather complex question. So the audience is making that decision for you then, isn't it? Well, I would say it's actually editors make those decisions. Yeah, okay, sure. Editors make those decisions. That's a fair point. But they're informed by, and in the digital universe we all live in, you know, the the audience is is king or queen. And if less than 5,000 people don't want to read about if only 5,000 people want to read about Manus, then... But but we can't just chase clicks, you yeah, know, because it's, as no, journalists, you've got to... No, it's a whole, also the educate, a whole show on that. <laughs> educate, inform, and entertain. Can, can I just mention one other dynamic there, which is, um, and it's a bit of vicious cycle, but because um, uh, I think there's this element in the media where once 
readers or clickers or whatever we want to call them. Clickers. Um, yeah. That's a whole new term. <laughs> become attuned to a story mm. um, they're going to they're going to come back to it Absolutely. and follow it mm. and so habituation, habituation. Yes. Okay. Yeah, okay well put so mm. I think that's an issue with the story mm. like the so DRC. the DRC if we started reporting it every day I mean yeah, and it's not yeah. it's not irrelevant it's the it's the longest most expensive UN peacekeeping mission in the world mm. so like this idea that the audience have that it's irrelevant is is completely wrong and it's at the forefront of issues like the illegal trade in in minerals which are causing these issues. There's a great Australian angle to that DRC story and that is that Australia is a mineral uh, it's it's got a lot of cobalt, and there's a couple of companies that are setting up trying to be this alternative source of cobalt to go into your iPhone. So there are ways of actually finding stories which will be more relevant to your, or you know, your readers might be more interested in, but also mentioning the DRC and, and the yeah, issues no, well, there. Okay, all right. Journalists need to try a bit harder, is what you're saying. Yeah, they should always Find be open angle. to finding the angle. Yeah, okay. Look, we're running out of time, so I do want to. I did promise that we'd get to a certain person. Uh, who is either seen as the Messiah, a very naughty boy, a traitor, a potential sex offender, uh, um, you name it. Of course, I'm talking about Julian Assange, who is currently in a British prison. And as we heard this week, is facing about 17 breaches of the U.S. or charges related to the U.S. Espionage Act. And this is kind of, as the commentary is, and I'm sure the listeners know, this is a radical new way of looking at the Espionage Act because... Uh, journalists, uh, even there have been some attempts in the 1940s, but this is a very rare thing that, uh, that a journalist would be facing espionage charges. Up to now, Assange has been, you know, found, has been facing conspiracy charges in the US because of his relationship with Chelsea Manning, the whistleblower. Um, I guess the central question, two central questions about Assange always is, is he a journalist, point one, and secondly, and more complex, I suppose, this Espionage Act and, you know, he's obviously got to be extradited to the U.S. to face him if he ever is. Um, does that raise the stakes in terms of how we talk about WikiLeaks and Assange? We'll go around the table. Jonathan, is he a journalist? I don't think he's a journalist. Um, okay. I'll just hold that there. Jamie, is he a journalist? It's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, what is a journalist? Difficult to define. Uh, I would have great problems with the way he, uh, he, uh, he undertook... You know, just publishing raw documents on the mm. web, I don't think is journalism. No. Okay, well, hold that. Chrysanthi, is he a journalist? If this was a tutorial, I would have turned the question around and said, why does that question matter? Oh, okay, but it's not a tutorial, it's a radio show, so <laughs> is he a journalist? <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think it matters. I think uh, what, matters. He, I think what okay. he does matters. Right, what he does. public interest journalism. That's Okay, well, we'll stick with you and go back around the table. <laughs> the espionage, um, using, facing espionage charges, uh, is, is it an attack on journalism then? Put it that way. Yes. Yeah. That Assange is facing espionage charges. Yes, it is. is because, well, therefore, he is a journalist in your view. Well, I, it's an attack on journalism because we actually can't, it, it, because it, it's a sliding slope which then goes down to attacking whistleblowers, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to protect the whistleblower and the journalist protecting the whistleblower or the, or the publisher. I mean, the, one of the things about why we're talking about public interest journalism is because we are in this age where everyone has the ability to be a self-publisher, right? right? It doesn't make and, everyone a journalist, though, does it? No, it doesn't. No, because there is an aspect of, well, like Jamie was saying, you know, just publishing things raw on the web is, is actually quite... Dangerous. Indeed. 
Yeah. Okay. I think a journalist has to be more of a uh, also have <laughs> role as a curator and a responsible role in how to present that information and make sure it can't do real harm against the public interest. So I think that that's how I'd define journalism. However, okay. I do think this, you know, the problem with the US using the Espionage Act to go after Assange is that it could set a principle yes. that in the future we, um, you could find yourself with a New York Times journalist, a Guardian journalist. A, a you know, Financial Austin, Times journalist? Yes, any of those yes. people. They could try and use the same act. This hasn't happened in 102 years of this act. Indeed. Uh, so it's very, you know, it's a dangerous principle to go down. And they could have used other uh, other legislative tools to try and um, mm. prosecute Assange. Yes. So I think the Obama administration looked at using the Espionage Act, didn't do it mm. because it felt that it wouldn't get through the Supreme Court challenge system. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Trump's put a few people on the Supreme Court. So I suppose the danger is that if the Supreme Court did allow uh, this to go ahead, that it could undermine the First Amendment rights. You know, well, indeed, speech. and that's so kind that's of potentially Trump's game plan here. Jonathan, what do you think about the Espionage? And this is possibly the last word of the show. Well, I agree exactly with, uh, oh, with you Jamie. You can't disagree. Um, <laughs> no, not for the last word. I think, um, I, I think that um, there should be potential consequences for you know, highly irresponsible, dangerous forms of publication. Um, but I don't think that the Espionage Act is, is is the correct mechanism, and I think it has worrying consequences for you know for more broadly for journalism. Even putting aside that we're not necessarily classifying a special issue of your um, journal, your magazine, to look at these sorts of issues because there's a lot going on about freedom of media. Yeah, I mean, um, we're, I'm fascinated, as you know, by um, by the consequences also of, of you know whole fake news mm. phenomenon mm. Um, mm. Uh, but um, but issues that we're seeing in terms of in terms of the media and in terms of more broadly um, f- different forms of publication and, and and the freedom of access that people have to kind of publishing globally are having huge consequences on politics around the world and uh, I think we'll definitely take a look at that and on, on the ability of journalists to do their job on that rather sombre note, we're going to leave this edition of the Fourth Estate. Um, we have been talking to Jamie Smith from the uh, Aust- uh, the Australian Pacific correspondent for the Financial Times. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Emilian. Uh, Jonathan Perlman, the editor of Australian Foreign Affairs. Do buy it in a good bookshop and and the world editor of the Saturday paper, which you can also buy in good bookshops. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. And Chrysanthi Yotis, uh, who is a postdoc research fellow at the Centre for Media Transition and has some fantastic thoughts um, about how we can improve foreign reporting. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to have you all here. I think it's the sort of subject we could keep talking about and maybe we'll return to it later in the year. But for now, thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the community radio network. And make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favorite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics, and a few things in between at your leisure. And we'll be back next week with more. But in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey, and I'd like to thank my producer, Julia Carr-Katzel, and Anthony Dockerell. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.